BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Simone Sanders. She made her name as Bernie Sanders' outspoken press secretary in the 2016 campaign and returned to the field to work for Biden in the 2020 race. Then she got the gig as a senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris. But Sanders left that all behind for a new job, not in D.C., but at MSNBC. I wanted to know why she made the jump over to media and how she plans to credibly cover an administration she just left. And of course, I wanted her take on the future of the Democratic Party and whether Joe Biden is the best candidate in 2024. Simone, welcome to Sway. I am happy to be here on this illustrious podcast. Illustrious. I don't think anyone's called it that, Simone. But okay, sure, I'll take it. So I want to first talk about your jump to media. So let's start with the show you're doing on MSNBC, which is named after you. It launched the first Saturday in May, and your first guest was Jill Biden. Talk to me about why you picked Dr. Biden for that. You know, I think that Dr. Biden is a fascinating first lady. She is the first first lady to hold a job outside of the White House. And that interview actually coincided with her trip to Ukraine. And she said she felt the need to go and stand with the women and their children for Mother's Day. She wanted Ukrainians to know that America is standing with them. So I thought it was just, it was a great time to do it. And I was grateful for uh, her giving us the space to have the conversation. So one of the things that happened on TV because you left the Biden administration was some people pushed back on you and then you pushed back on them. They accused you of access journalism, that you didn't ask her tough questions. Honestly, I think it's hard to, in that kind of guest situation with a first lady, you really can't ask tough questions to her. So you what said that. What first lady are we supposed to be grilling? Like, maybe <laughs> Melania Trump, okay, because she she wore a jacket uh, that said, I don't really care. Well, you know, children are being ripped away from their parents. But come on. I just really think that, um, you know, Kara, I think that people love to be critical. And everybody loves to have a hot take, honey. But the reality is Dr. Biden does not do a lot of interviews. So I was happy that she decided to do one with me. And I think that no one talks about the white men who get access, right? Like, what about all the white men who worked for presidents and vice presidents and, and worked for and ran presidential campaigns? What about them? Talk about that idea. You did. You mentioned there's a lot of people. George Stephanopoulos is a good example. He came from the Clinton administration. Nicole Wallace obviously worked for John McCain and others. How hard was that transition of covering the administration critically? And how do you ensure you're not targeted as a press arm of the White House over at MSNBC? You know, it wasn't that hard for me because I had a life before the White House, right? Uh, I used to be a commentator for a number of years on CNN, and I've also built a career as someone who is direct and, you know, that says what she would like to say. But I do think that it is very important that I make it very clear for people that, you know, I'm not a spokesperson for the Biden administration. I had that job already. You know, my job now is to help just give some insight, really, 
peel back the layers. I do know the president and vice president very well. A lot of the things that, you know, the White House is executing on right now, these are ideas that were developed during the campaign that I was intimately involved in. So I can provide insight, but I I also have my own thoughts, you know. You decided to do this because MSNBC seems to be doubling down on, you know, Trump calls it MSDNC. Um, Of course, I would call Fox News Trumpaganda, for example. Um, But it also hired former White House press secretary Jen Psaki, obviously Nicole Wallace. But what's the strategy here, do you think? How did you think about it when you were going over? Because it feels like a bit of a revolving door. Yeah, I can't speak to anyone else. I don't know the particulars of what Saki is and isn't doing next, but whatever it is, I'm super excited for her. I can say for me that when I left the White House, I had a number of different opportunities. And MSNBC was actually the most appealing for me because they had an established track record in streaming. And I wanted to be somewhere where I could be on television because I do think what is happening on TV and what people see on TV is still driving and creating a lot of the conversation. But it is a limiting space. And I know so many young people who don't turn on the television and they only, you know, they look at things on their phones. And MSNBC on Peacock allows me to play in that space as well. So you wanted something where you could do streaming because you because yes. cable ratings are very low. Do you think cable is the medium? You said it drives the conversation. How how do you look I at it? I think it is still driving conversation. Yeah. I mean, I have I'm I'm 32 years old and I can tell you the only reason I was really turning on the TV to look at the news, frankly, was because of the jobs that I have worked over the last, you know, seven to 10 years. It is still creating a conversation. When you are sitting, whether you are sitting in a campaign office, the White House, or one of the party committees, you are looking at what people are saying on television. And if you are a press person or a comms person, you're often calling up those people. You are calling up the networks and you are making your case as to why they need to frame it better and get it right. So I think that medium is still very important. But A lot of the conversation is happening outside of traditional television, like cable television right now. A lot of the conversation is being driven online. It is it is being driven in, and I'm not talking about Twitter either because 20% of Americans are on Twitter. So I'm talking about all these other mediums. And I think it's really important to be able to create content that can reach those folks and that pulls those people in. So why do cable at all? I, 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 why not become a TikTok influencer, Simone? Why didn't you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I mean, I hear the TikTok influencers are getting the coin, Kara. Yeah, so they are indeed. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should have talked to my agents. Look, I think that TV is still very important. As I just said, again, if you're sitting in any of those spaces and places that I named, you were turning on the television to see what happened. I go back to January 6th. And I was on the the Hill with the vice president that day. And when, you know, I finally got home, I turned on the TV. I was also, though, looking at my social media, but I turned on the TV. And people are still turning on the TV. They have not turned it off yet. Do you think MSNBC needs to court more conservative voices as well? And yourself, too. This is something I think you've talked about, is the idea of hearing from more voices, which it's a, all these sides feel like an echo chamber to me among people of their own side. But do you feel the need to have more conservative voices on your show? I do have conservative voices on my show. If I'm doing a political panel, there's a Repub- a real Republican on my political panel. And, you know, we're not there to argue. I, I really think that it is important for people to know that There's more than just, you know, your little vantage point out there. And I think Nicole Wallace does a really good job of, as a woman who has worked at the highest levels of 
the Republican Party for Republican officials, I think her vantage point is extremely important. There are people out there I, I know that'll critics that'll say, we don't need to talk to Republicans. And, and I just, I don't believe that. I'm from Nebraska. Like, I grew up in a conservative state, in a conservative community, if you will. Like, I think of myself as a pragmatic progressive, like most Black women in America, okay? So I think it is very important to not paint with a broad stroke brush. And so when we are putting together segments and things on my team, I will never say that all the Republicans are doing X, Y, and Z because all the Republicans are not. So how would you characterize yourself? A pundit? A, you know, no, I'm not a pundit. I'm an anchor. Nah, I'm you're a an host. anchor. I have a show. A, okay, all right, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, all right, got it. No, I, that's, but how do you think of yourself as what the point of doing what you're doing is? I am a part of the media apparatus and, and throughout my um, political career, I've been very critical of the media apparatus, right? how they cover stories, what they do and don't talk about. Well, now I have a responsibility to put my money where my mouth is. So if I say that the discourse is missing X, I now have the opportunity to create and facilitate that particular discourse. What's the thing that bothered you most from the other side of the media, now that you're on this side or whatever, if sides are really what it is? I think of it more as vantage points, but that's fine. I think the thing that used to bother me most is that folks... Uh, there are many great journalists out there that take their time to do do the legwork, that take their time to understand. But in a 24-hour media news cycle, sometimes people are just looking at the headlines and they are relying on the people on their team to, you know, give them the top lines and give them, you know, whatever, whatever they can talk about. And I just really think that they're oftentimes is a lack of due diligence when it comes to the details and the framing of a story. Right. So why, I'm curious, when you use the term vantage point, what do you, you're using it rather than sides. What is a vantage point to you? No, vantage point. So like from where I was sitting at the White House, I had a different vantage point than where I sit now at MSNBC. Mm-hmm. And how has that changed, would you say, when you look at the administration having been inside and out? I think that I just, I mean, sometimes I just feel like I know too much because, because <laughs> well, I have sat in there, right? I've been in the meetings. I've been with the people. I, there, there are just so many layers and there really is not enough time to like get into the weeds. When we are going through segments and um, story ideas here, I'm like, okay, we got to explain this. We got to explain that. And my EP, Catherine, is always like, look, we can't do it at the top of every show. You, you need to get it out in a question if that's the case. So uh, I'll, I'll give a real example. The student debt cancellation fight, right? I, I really think that people have missed the mark in the way that they talk about it. You know, the president did make a campaign promise on the campaign trail to forgive up to $10,000 of debt across the board for every person in America that got debt. That's what he said. I was there. He did not say 50, right? But then there are people that are like, oh, you should do 50. And now if you talk to advocates or activists, they say the administration has done nothing on student debt cancellation. And that actually is not true. The administration has forgiven, I do believe the number is up to $17 billion of debt for more than 725,000 borrowers. That's a lot of money. But what has not happened is Joe Biden keeping that campaign promise, honey. So that's a very valid thing to discuss. But there are people out there who turn on the television, who are reading these stories. Well, they're probably not reading the newspaper. Let's be honest. They are reading the headlines, these young people. Some of them, we are not picking up newspapers. Read the newspapers, y'all. They're they not are going looking to. at headlines Simone, and they're, they're saying, not this administration to. has done yeah. nothing. They're not going. They're not doing it. But we need to just do a little due diligence. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Biden, uh, because you were in this administration. His disapproval rating is 52 percent, according to 538. It's high. Trump's was similar. Not a good benchmark. Is this a failure of messaging? Where, where has it gone wrong from your perspective now that you're on the outside? You know, I really think that um, I think going in, this administration talked about a range of things that 
they were going to get done. When it comes to vaccines, when it comes to uh, middle-class families, right? When it comes to infrastructure. Um, and a number of those things have gotten done, but a number of those things haven't. And infamously, the Build Back Better agenda is just stalled on its feet. Uh, it's just stalled on, on the ground, I guess. And I, I do think that people just expect so much more. And because they expect so much more, they cannot see everything that has gotten done. And I think in retrospect, maybe leveling with the American people a little more about this is how it's going to go down on the front end probably would have put folks in a better position now. I do think that the president does a very good job of leveling with the American people when he comes out and he has to say stuff. He's very straight up. But the reality is if any other president had gotten just a fraction of what Joe Biden had gotten done, folks would be saying that he was the, you know, transformational, right? Like, he got an infrastructure package passed. So, so why then the disconnect? He's struggling among young voters, voters of color. Where is the disconnect? Well, I just told you. You know, a number of young voters out there think that Joe Biden hasn't done anything on student debt cancellation. And that's actually not true. Now, some people are like, it's not just knowing what has been done. But I think that it is. Knowing what has been done and constantly putting that forward for the American people. And I think that there are a number of Democrats across the board, particularly people who are on the ballot this November, who still are talking about the things that they haven't gotten done, that Republicans have not allowed them to do, instead of all the work that has gotten done. Because the reality is things have happened. And I find it so interesting that the House has actually, you know, got stuff done. I mean, it's, the stuff has gone to die in the Senate, but the House has passed bills. But it's the House that is in jeopardy. I think we are definitely looking at a place where Democrats could lose the House and potentially expand their margins in the Senate. I don't know. Which is kind of crazy because the Senate ain't done their job on on a lot of things. Sure, but it doesn't really matter if you're in charge, you're in charge, right? It's more than messaging. It's a tone of the administration that feels like things are falling backwards. Um, Maybe there is no winning here, given the the persistent attacks from Republicans. Um, But Republicans just continue to declare victory even when they're losing. Yeah, and they don't even have a plan. Like, I, 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 well, they don't have to. If you're not governing, you can throw things at people and continually say you have victory when you don't have it. It seems like it. Well, it doesn't seem. I mean, Kara, I think this is a. it, It is broader than the White House. There is a broad Democratic Party apparatus here that I think needs to carry its weight. Right, like. Where is the surrogate operation for the midterm elections? Where is the the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the Democratic National Committee? Hell, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. So where is it, Simone? I don't. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. I don't work there. But I'm just saying, like, those are the things when I say it's broader than just the White House. I do think that the president is coming out here and the vice president and they are trying to give their roadmap, honey. They are trying. You know, the president has been on the road more. People are very critical. They're like, he does. He hasn't been on the road to sell his agenda. And he's like, I'm on the road selling my agenda. And. The entire apparatus has to wrap their arms around what is happening and do their part. And I think comparably, if you look at the Republican Party apparatus, that happens on that side. Oh, no, they definitely fall in line. Could Biden learn something from Bernie? Does he need to get more progressive? Could he learn something from Trump, especially on how to use social media? Well, I think Donald Trump is a danger to democracy, Kara. So I I would caution people trying to take lessons from former President Trump. I do think, though, that... um, that the president's agenda has actually been very progressive. I just really think it boils down to what people say all the time. Republicans fall in line. Democrats, you know, they just they, they fall, just, just don't. Fall. And I think 
Yeah. <laughs> they just fall. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, if people would really like to see some progress within the Democratic Party apparatus, they have to do the work. And doing the work is more than just, you know, running up to the White House and, um, you know, airing your grievances. I think that people have forgotten the way that the the Biden campaign was able to really cobble together various pieces of the Democratic Party apparatus base and win was about making this bigger than just about Joe Biden. And I think, similarly, this moment is bigger than just, um, you know, one 2022 midterm election. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Elizabeth Warren, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Simone Sanders after the break. This podcast is supported by Merge. Planning on adding integrations to your product in 2024? Merge can help. Merge's API allows your developers to integrate once to offer hundreds of product integrations across key software categories. Merge maintains your integrations for you and provides tooling to make it easy for your customer success team to manage your integrations without engineering. Go to merge.dev slash hardfork to learn more about Merge and to get $5,000 off your choice of an annual plan. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Let's talk about the midterms. What's going to happen from your perspective? Obviously, everyone thinks the the Democrats are going to get trounced. How do you look at that? Because a lot of people are running towards the middle. You have, you know, Tim Ryan is attempting to beat J.D. Vance now. Um, There's a lot of more centrists like Jared Polis and others, and it seems to be working for them. Do you think running to the middle is a better idea or or is it just inevitable that it's going to be a trouncing? I think the solution is running to your district and running to your state. I think it is always a danger when gubernatorial candidates or Senate candidates or even congressional candidates try to nationalize their races. It does not work. And I think that people who keep their races local, who talk to their voters about the things that their voters care about, those are the people that have a fighting chance. Fighting chance. What does that mean? They have a fighting chance to potentially be successful. Look, I do think that it is a it is an uphill battle because it feels like everyone has been saying the same thing. House gone. All these people retiring. Doesn't look good. Okay, so if you are a voter who is listening and you constantly hear that, on top of that, you know, your things at the grocery store cost a little bit more. Your gas is high. You're, you're ordering things off Amazon, but they're not coming as quickly as they used to. And you are not hearing about what the people in charge are doing about those things. And you're not 
feeling the effects, I do think that could lead a voter to say, okay, well, maybe I need to do something different or maybe I'm just not going to vote at all. That is why this, this thing about the, in my opinion, the messaging and what people are saying to voters is actually key and very important. And it is like what Tim Ryan is saying to to the voters is how he won his Democratic primary. You know, the D.C. people want to come in and tell him the ads he are running and, and what he's saying is not helpful to the national discourse. Tim Ryan is like, I don't care about your national discourse. I care about the discourse in my state. And frankly, that's how people should be running their races. Does the Supreme Court leak change anything? Does it galvanize people or is it too? I think it could if it is... Um, corralled in the right way, right? So I really don't think it is helpful for Democratic leaders to just call Republicans names, right? I think that you have to paint the picture for people why this is so stark and so crazy. Like, what we are talking about is the criminalization of women, in my opinion. Who should message that, Vice President Harris? I mean, I think that's the conversation they all should be having. I don't think it just falls on, you know, the, the woman to talk mm-hmm. about it, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the woman, the Black woman vice president. I think it's on everyone to talk about. So talk a little bit about uh, what's after that, 2024. Should Biden run for re-election? Well, I think the reality is that the president has said he intends to run for re-election. Okay. The question is— I'm asking you, should he? He said he wants to—look, I think the, Joe Biden has been running for president since before I was alive. I was born in 1989. Okay, so someone who has wanted to be president that long, who has ran on three different occasions, and now he finally gets it. He takes out someone who many people, myself included, thought were, bring, like, were taking us to our democracy to the brink. I think if he would like to run for re-election, he should. He got a lot, of, a lot of things done. Joe Biden beat Trump when a, a couple other people could not, so he might as well. He might, he might as well. It's a I mean, endorsement. You don't work like, for yes. him anymore, Simone. I think. Does there need to be someone I else? I think it's crazy for people to say. Well, no, it's not. Why is it not crazy? Is there a stronger candidate? I think that's a no. Totally I just think it's question. crazy for people to say. Um, I know that there's a lot of chatter out there of Democrats being like Joe Biden shouldn't run for re-election. Why? I think that he he ran last time. He won. He's gotten a number of things done since he has been there. Um, there are some things he has yet to get done. Fair. But is the only reason he shouldn't run is because he's a little older? I, I just think that's a crazy argument. You don't think there's anyone better. But if he didn't run, who would be a good candidate from your perspective? That's not what now? I think. I want to be really clear what I think. What mm-hmm. I think is Joe Biden is the current president of the United States of America who has gotten a lot of things done. And if he wants to run for the re-election. I think members of his party that are whispering in the shadows and on and on background and off the record to journalists, like, shame on them. If you don't think the president should run for re-election, put your name on that quote. But I just don't think anybody has given a real argument as to why he should not. In the event that the president decides that he now does not want to run for re-election, even though he has said that he does, I think that there are a number of people that could be, that would be, obviously, I think the sitting vice president of the United States of America would run. She ran before, so she could run. And I think that there would obviously be some other people that also try to run. But my personal opinion is that it is hard to beat a sitting vice president of the United States. Remember when the president picked her, he said that part of the criteria for him was picking someone that would be ready on day one, someone he knew could be president. And so if Joe Biden decides not to run for re-election, uh, he, <laughs> I find it very hard to believe that he's not going to endorse his vice president, the first woman, black woman to have that you know role. So what is their relationship now? Because many feel that she's been sidelined. Uh, I don't know if oh, you feel that way. I don't think way. that's true. 
Yeah, okay. no, Tell I don't us think why. she's been sidelined at all. I think that um, the president, vice president have a good relationship, and the vice president understands, and like every other vice president before her, that at the end of the day, it is the president's decision. So she's, in my experience, been extremely supportive of that. I think that there's a lot of chatter out there, Kara. Yeah, and I, there's a lot of chatter. Yeah, there's a lot of chatter, and I just why? feel like people need to— I don't know. Well, I, well, I do know. There's palace intrigue. There's not much else to talk about. Like, this is not a drama-filled White House, right? Like, you know, uh, it, it's, there's not a lot of drama. And so people are intrigued with what is happening inside that building between the president and vice president. I do think that a lot of people in the media continue to treat the vice president as though she is a, an, an active candidate for office as opposed to the sitting vice president of the United States of America. And when people are looking at her as some kind of air apparent every single day, you know, they are looking for stories and angles that show something is going on there. Mm-hmm. Well, is there chaos in that office or do you think it's overreported? There's been a number of significant stories about that. Yeah, I think it's overreported. Honestly, I really do. I'm trying to think about the last time I read stories about male um, elected officials like that. You know, my experience with the vice president is that she is a boss that asks people to bring their best to work every day. Same experience I've had with the president, similar experience that I have with uh, United States Senator Bernie Sanders when I worked for him. Same experience I've had for gubernatorial candidates and uh, governors. So I just, I really think it's hyped and overblown. Do you think it's overblown, that it that's because she's a woman, woman of color, et cetera? Yes, I really do. What do they get most wrong about her? Because she's a target of the Republicans. You know, she gets attacked quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, of, of course she's going to be attacked. She's going to get attacked because it is easy to— um, they, they're trying to scare people, for lack of a better term. Some of my Republican friends are trying to scare people. It's similar to what happened with President Obama. You know, the othering, the birtherism, the same thing going on here, people. Okay, just go back a couple years. So I'm not surprised that they are attacking her. I think a lot of times what happens is the the right wing attacks um, people then take as actual facts and fodder. Uh, When Justice Breyer said he was stepping down, I, I saw a lot of. Democrats, actually, and actual journalists asking questions saying, are you considering putting the vice president on the Supreme Court? Yeah, I saw What? Well, mm-hmm. but it made its way into mainstream conversation. So I do think that people have to be vigilant about not just repeating what I would call right-wing propaganda. Okay. Did you think about staying? Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre was promoted to press secretary. Yes, that so something? happy for her. Did you think about why did you leave instead of moving up, essentially? Well, I think I had a really nice, great job at the White House, but I was tired, Kara. I worked the campaign. I went straight from the campaign to the transition, went straight from the transition to the the White House. I traveled with the vice president on just about every single trip she went on. Uh, I was tired, okay? And I think, you know, I've earned a break. I'm also getting married this year, so I wanted to have time to actually enjoy the planning of uh, our wedding. And I... I did miss the opportunity of being in the commentating TV space. You know, I didn't know. Right. You yeah, have a lot I knew that. I think you and I talked about that, that, you know, and one of the things was you wanted to be seen and heard, I think is what you said. And you were like, one of the things you were talking about is that you were a lot for politics. You didn't want to rein yourself in, I guess, in that regard. Yeah, I think, look, the reality is not that I did not feel like the president or vice president didn't value my voice when I worked for them, but the difference is that when you are a spokesperson for someone, it is not your job to create your own nuance and context for yourself. You are their spokesperson. And I think I'm a very good spokesperson, but 
you know, I did miss, I, I did like that time when I was not anyone's spokesperson in that time in between when I was consulting on my own and I had, uh, and I was a commentator. And I thought that this was just a fascinating uh, upcoming midterm. So I think in this moment, I cannot think of a better opportunity than to not just be a part of conversations, but to facilitate and create conversations on a regular basis. So I'm excited about uh, the opportunity that I have, and I think I'm in a great place. Can I ask you a last question about something on your show? The use of your name in segments, Simone says, and Cy moments. (laughs) Is that going to stop? Or not? Do you like no, that? No, no. Some moments and Simone says are a thing. All right, all right. And then are there more to come? There are no more to come. It's just no. some moments and Simone says. <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> you know that's a little Bill O'Reilly. You know that. He did things like that. Well, I, I, you know, Bill O'Reilly seemed to do all right before he yeah. got crazy. So maybe it's a sign. Simone says, I guess. Anyway, thank you so much, Simone. It was really enjoyable talking to you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, Wyatt Orm, and Kristen Lin. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Christina Samuelewski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a fighting chance to be potentially successful, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.